welcome to the American Farrier's Journal podcast. I'm Jeremy McGovern. So I've been a bit nostalgic lately. This week marks my 12th anniversary with the journal. And I was thinking back to my first week at the magazine. We had Red Renshin in. Uh, if you don't know who he is, he's no longer with us. But Red was our technical editor for many years. He was also a Hall of Fame farrier working both here in Wisconsin, but also down in Wellington during show season. And I asked him what the key to serving the farrier industry is. He said, don't get wrapped up in the big names, don't get wrapped up with the clinicians, but focus on the people who just put their head down and do good work every day and give back to the industry. So I remembered that this week, and I think it's appropriate with our guest on this podcast episode, and that's Robin Goodrich. Many of us also know him as R.T. Goodrich. Maybe you know him, maybe you don't. You may have seen him working at the AFA convention, giving back his time there. But he's very fitting of that description of someone who's maybe a little more low profile and just goes out and does the work to serve the horses he works with. In this episode, we talk about his move from Washington to California, and he gives a lot of advice for how to start out in a new area, but also what has helped him persevere as a farrier. And we'll begin this episode with talking about his early love of horses and how he became a farrier. Tell me about how you got into horses and horseshoeing. Uh, that, that actually goes back a long ways. When I was a little kid, uh, I was born in Seattle, and uh, my dad traveled a lot, did construction, and so my mom wanted me to do things that little boys usually do with their dad. So she bought me a fishing pole and threw a baseball at me and signed me up for swimming lessons. And at this, uh, it was called the Aqua Barn Ranch, and they had a, a horse program and a swimming program. I think I was probably five or six, seven, maybe. And uh, she'd come and get me from swimming lessons and find me at the barn. <laughs> so she finally, she was scared to death of horses, but she took the first set of lessons with me because she didn't want me to do something that she was afraid of. And the instructor let her know that I, I had it pretty well under control. So she got to back out after that. And uh, my parents promised me when we moved away from Seattle, to get me a horse. And I was just barely 10. And uh, we had barely unpacked. I said, don't, don't forget. <laughs> and so I, uh, I started riding real young, had a horse from then on. And uh, when I was in high school, I worked at a veterinary clinic. And it was a small animal vet. And I'd go in in the morning and I'd take care of the, the animals and clean the cages and give the medicines and go to school. And he, he hired a, a large animal veterinarian. And uh, he told me my job was to keep him alive. So after school, I'd go around with him and help set up his truck and hold horses and whatnot. And he put himself through uh, vet school as a farrier. And I thought at the time, uh, actually from as far back as I can remember, my parents told everybody that would listen that I was going to go to vet school. So that was sort of, uh, sort of the plan. But I finally, I was about 15 or 16, and I got him to take me and uh, show me how to do some shoeing, and he was just dead set against it. He said, use your brains, not your back. Promise me you'll go to college. And so I did, and uh, I got out of school. I, I was one of those guys that I'd, I'd want to take a class on something, and you'd have to be a declared major. So I changed my major so I could take a class or two, and then I'd change it back to something else. I think I changed my major 14 or 15 times in the five years I was at Washington State University. <laughs> But I finally figured I better get out and get a job. And I, uh, I went to work for a newspaper because I got my, my, when I finally got a degree, it was in advertising. And uh, I didn't like that all that much. I, I did okay at it, but um, got a job as a booking agent and a talent manager. And I did that for a little while. And then I ended up going on the road with one of the bands. And five years later, came home and was building houses and it was snowing like crazy and I got laid off and I flipped open a magazine and it said horseshoeing school starts every Monday. Two Mondays later, I was in Oklahoma. Which school did you go to in Oklahoma? Uh, uh, Oklahoma horseshoeing school. Okay. Uh, Jack, Jack Roth owned it. He wasn't there much. He, uh, he was training uh, race horses mostly at the time he came in. I mean, he was there every day, but uh, Jay Watson was actually my instructor. Yeah. What year was that? Boy, that would have been his 30 years ago, so it would have been about 1990, I think. So, I told my parents I wanted to uh, skip Washington State University and go to Meredith Manor and learn how to train cutters and be a blacksmith, and they wouldn't have any part of it. So it took me a little while to get to it. I think I was early 30s when I finally went to school and had two little kids already. <laughs> yeah. How hard was it to make that transition after you, you started a family? 
it was easy for me because uh, I knew everybody in the town that I grew up in. Uh, I was very involved in, in uh, the Washington State Horseman Association and the, the local riding club. And it was something I had always wanted to do and messed with a little bit, but didn't really know how to do it correctly. So it was easy. I got home on a Sunday and my, I remember, I'll never forget this, is my very first client was a musician friend of mine. And she had this little Arab that nobody could get hind shoes on. Well, I went to Oklahoma Horseman School. I can do anything. <laughs> so I remember it was, it was 100 degrees, and I had this little Arab tied to a barbed wire fence. And Jay Watson had given me a stall jack. I didn't have an anvil, and I didn't have a forge. And the stall jack was just a little one-legged thing on a peg, so you pound it into the ground. And every time you hit a shoe, the thing would tip over. So it took me most of the day. But uh, Jack told us when we left school that when you go home, find out who the highest-paid farrier is in your area and charge $5 more because you graduated from Oklahoma Horseshoe School. I knew all the barriers around my town, so I didn't really want to do that. So I charged her $35 like everybody else got. I went home and I called uh, called uh, Dave at uh, Valley Farrier at Forge in uh, Beaver Creek there, and I ordered a forge and an anvil and raised my rates to $40. So my second horse in, I was the highest paid farrier in my valley. <laughs> It, were the other shores like that, not uh, into using forges and, and you know, hot, hot shaping, hot shoeing? Very, very few. Most of them uh, just, and, and I kind of fell into that too. I, I was all gung-ho to, to hot shoe everything for a while and got to where you, you know, you, you get complacent, especially if you don't have anybody to mentor you. And uh, you just start doing drive-by, do whatever's quick and easy. And where I grew up, there were a lot of horses, but they were scattered. Sometimes you drive 40, 50 miles between calls and you get home at 10 or 11 o'clock at night. But then uh, I started, uh, there was a guy in my area named John Penfold who invited me to my first clinic. And it also happened to be at Dave's place down in Oregon as a Bob Scrazio uh, shoe modification clinic. And I was on fire after that. I didn't, I didn't do any cold shoeing at all. My elbows were starting to hurt and my wrists were starting to hurt and I hadn't been at it very long. But it's just all body mechanics, and uh, I was learning the wrong way. So, yeah, I still use a forge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you know, we usually find that the attrition rate and would farriers typically drop drop out of the industry or the ones who don't make it is the three to five year range. You know, what what did you find helpful to to carry yourself through those first difficult years? You know, I just, I just really loved it. I, you know, I, like I said, I've been at it for 30 years, and I think you could do it for two lifetimes and not figure it out. I mean, to me, it's a wonderful, beautiful puzzle. I like to work on, uh, on therapeutic cases. I, like, I work with a lot of vets, and, and I like to watch horses move, and I like to ride them, and I just like being around them. I think uh, if I liked people more, I'd probably do something different, but <laughs> I get along with horses really well. Yeah, you might, might still be in advertising. I know, right? <laughs> Did you ever talk to the vet, let him know you did become a horseshoer? You know, he moved away. Uh, last I heard, and this was when I was still quite young, he went into the Army and was doing uh, veterinary work for the Army, meat inspection or something, and then he moved out of the area, so I never did see him again. But I do have another little story. When I was in college, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Dr. Olin Balk. Yes. He, uh, he was a pretty well-known equine podiatrist. He was my farrier when he was an undergrad. And I ran into him several years later at an AFA convention in Portland. He was a guest speaker. And I walked up to, to the podium to see if he remembered me. And all he could say was, oh, please tell me you got something else going for you besides this. <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah, that's exactly what my dad said. But I'll tell, him what I, tell you what I told him. And you know, there's nothing wrong with being an educated farrier. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's how I've gotten to know you is seeing you at the AFA conventions over the years. And yeah. Uh, what year did you start getting involved with that? Oh, gosh, I don't remember exactly. But there again, it was my, my friend John Penfold told me about it. Jay Watson mentioned it once when we were in class that, you know, there's some things you can do. And uh, I was probably, uh, I guess, three or four years into it once I started really getting excited about going to clinics. And I still do. I go to as many clinics as I can. I may not learn something new, but I may learn something I don't want to do or figure out something that I forgot. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the good thing is you may at least learn a way of not how not to do something. Yeah, and that's what I love about having helpers and apprentices is I, I learn as much from them as hopefully they do from me. What's, uh, what, what sort of program do you have for taking on an apprentice or a helper? 
Well, I, I used to have a, a, I guess you'd call it a multi-farrier practice. I had three trucks on the road, and uh, that was just chaos. <laughs> at the at the end of the year, I ended up doing a lot more work and paying a lot more taxes. So now I just I have uh, one one guy that works with me, and he's not a helper and apprentice. He's a he's a full-fledged farrier and, and very very competent, and we work well together. And I'm uh, I got a few years on me now, so it's nice to have somebody ready to pass the torch to. I've always dreamed of having somebody come along that stayed with me long enough to, to take over someday. And that, you know, that never happens. Usually you get somebody, you teach them what you know, and they start making a little money and then they disappear. But uh, I've had a couple of guys that have really, really impressed me and made me very, very proud. But uh, we have, I have two trucks and uh, we ride together most of the time. And then sometimes we divide and conquer. They'll go one end of the county and I'll go to the other and we'll meet somewhere in the middle. Yeah. More fun when we work together though. Yeah. What's the uh, key to running a practice like that? I, I think it, it, you, you have to be open-minded and, and you know, everybody has bad days. You have to, you have to be careful what you say and how you say it. And, and I think for me, it, it's always, I've always been pretty lucky in that I can take somebody with me. And I don't have a lot of grief from clients worried about somebody other than me working on their horse. I've always had people that I felt were very competent. And I'm really careful about, you know, what they say around the clients and how they behave around the horses or I won't take them in the truck. You know, I'm, I'm fairly quiet and I can get in and get out and get my job done. And most of the time, nobody knows I'm there. And I, I like it that way. <laughs> Yeah. And I think that's an advantage of some practices for, for the other person if they just enjoy the work with the horses and to not deal with the booking or the client calls or, or you know, more the administrative side of it. Exactly. The the people that have worked for me the longest have been just like that. They just, they don't want to deal with the clients. They don't want to deal with the billing. And, and, you know, we do mostly show barns. So we don't, I mean, I've worked for clients that I've never met just because they live out of state or out of the area and they have horses here in training. And so I, I have to bill. And uh, a lot of people don't want to mess with that. It's not ideal for me either, but I do it. Yeah. But I had a, a guy work for me for 12 years and uh, I asked him, I said, you're fully capable of going out and making a living on your own. He goes, no, nah, but I don't want to have to deal with all this nonsense. I'll just let you do that. <laughs> he moved out of the area. Otherwise he'd still be in the truck. He's a great guy. <laughs> so uh, to back up, you know, how did your uh, practice progress back in Washington? It, it was pretty easy for me because I, I knew everybody. And there weren't a ton of farriers up there. And those that were there, we all got along. You know, where I am in California, there's shoers flying from all over. There's so many horses here. I see trucks every day. In Washington, you may go a week and not bump into anybody unless you happen to be at the one and only saddle club in, in the town. But uh, it was easy. And, you know, I remember when I was getting ready to go to school, I was talking to a farrier friend of mine up there. And he said, just so you know, let your skin get a little thick because he said, when you get back, somebody's going to fire me and hire you. And then they're going to fire you and hire John. And then they're going to fire John and hire Steve. And they may or may not come around to you again someday. He says, horse owners are fickle and you may do everything right and still get canned. So he said, don't let it worry you. And I kind of adopted that. I mean, I used to be super sensitive if somebody would, would fire me or if I'd get into it with a client, but I, I don't worry about it so much anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's always the, the troublesome part. Um, the the thickness of some clients how would you manage it if uh, someone called you and said I'd, I'd like to hire you I've been in this area for a while so you know they're established with a horse what, what do you do in terms of finding out about their previous farrier oh, I just ask them because again I, I try and be well good example I had a, a phone call just recently somebody I, I have been fairly successful working on quarter cracks and I got a phone call somebody wanted me to work on a quarter crack and so I asked them straight up who their farrier was, and they told me. I said, have you, have you talked to this person? And, well, yeah, but we want you to come and help. And I said, well, contact your farrier first, and if that's okay, I'm more than happy to come and spend a day and help her however long it takes. And then she said, well, will you do that? And I said, no, <laughs> I won't because it's, you're, you're the client, and, and this farrier has worked very hard to do their best for you. So if it's okay with your farrier, then fine. And it was, it was great. It turned out it was a good friend of mine and we worked together and, and uh, I had some ideas and she had some ideas and the horse walked away. So it worked out. But I, I try and find out because I don't want to step on anybody's toes in this area. There are so many horses. There's no reason for that. 
Right, right. What uh, do you have any go-to questions or any uh, tips you use to maybe ferret out a client you don't want to work with before you uh, show up on their property? I'm not real good at that, but I am getting better. <laughs> Mostly because the people that have worked with me have uh, have, have schooled me a little bit because sometimes I don't ask the right questions and we find out that we're getting to this fire breathing monster that nobody else can get around. So I try and I just, I'm pretty gentle about it, but I try and ask them, you know, what's the story with the horse and who you've been using and how's it going and, you know, the, the usual stuff. And, and again, I've, you know, I've been in this area for 18 years now. And so I, I know pretty much everybody around and, and farriers in every community will talk. So if you get somebody that's bad pay or bad horse or whatever the word gets out. Yeah. Uh, the industry is too small to not know that, even though how, how many people you do have in Northern California. Um, yeah, we kind of have to take care of each other because nobody else is going to. Sure, sure. Uh, so after 12 years in Washington, you made the move to, to California. How did you reestablish your, your business? So that's an interesting story, too. I, I was perfectly content in Washington. I grew up there. Um, there's a lot of snow in the wintertime where I lived, and so... I spent 11 years uh, driving a sleigh at a guest ranch, <laughs> and uh, then I finally decided I didn't want to be cold all winter, so I started repairing skis and snowboards and ended up being cold anyway because it was on top of a mountain. But I was uh, I wrote an article, and uh, this kind of changed my, my career a little bit. Uh, I sent it to Frank, and he published it, and I got a phone call from Rick Redden, and he said, I want you to come and talk at the symposium. And, I, you know, I was all shaky and excited. And I said, well, I'd like to do that. But I said, I know you, you're not a big fan of the heart bar shoe. And that's what I used. And he said, I don't care what you did. It worked. I don't want you to come talk about it. So I did. I went and uh, um, gave my little thing. And I, and I got uh, Mike DeLonardo was doing his Farrier Center thing and wanted me to come down and take a look. And, and uh, Emil had retired from Pioneer. And he had always told me, he said, if you ever want to go there, I think that'd be a good fit. I'll set you up. So I thought, well, I'll go down. I just take a look. So I went to Pioneer and, and had an interview with Dr. Clark and he had offered me a spot there and I went down and saw Mike and then I was driving home and I don't know if you know Trevor Sutherland, but he's uh, uh, from New Zealand. He and I did our certification together many, many years ago and he was living in Sebastopol and he says, don't make any promises to anybody till we talk. He said, uh, just come with me for a few weeks and take it. And I still wasn't totally sure I wanted to move, but I did it and I wasn't here a week in uh, Pioneer sent me a referral and that referral was for a, an injury and that barn ended up being 30 horses and somebody in that barn had a daughter in another barn and that ended up being 30 more. So I got really lucky. I got really busy really fast. My plan was to stay here for 10 years, make a bunch of money and go home. Well, that plan kind of got scuttled a little bit. I met this long legged Dutch girl that owned a tax store and got remarried and 18 years later, here I am. <laughs> right. Still don't like snow. I I like snow, but I'm old and skinny now, and it, I just get real cold really easy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you can't have the snow without the cold, I guess. I know. <laughs> yeah, I was going back and looking at some of the stuff you'd sent in over the years, and started reading a case that you'd sent in. And if people are interested, they can go to the American Farriers uh, Journal website, AmericanFarriers.com, to read it and. It was the horse that wouldn't die. That uh, was the one. Yes, sir. And uh, yeah, that, and that was a, a really interesting case. I'll let you talk about it a little bit, but I have another question about it. It was an interesting case. She was on a trail ride, a Chief Joe trail ride in Montana, and she was tied to a fence with another horse, and she got kicked in the elbow, it fractured her, open fracture of the electron process, and uh, the local vet took the horse to his house, and gave the woman one of his horses to finish the ride. And when she got back, they decided it was fractured. And so they hauled it to uh, Washington State University. And they did a, a plate and screws. And they told her, make sure you, you talk to your farrier because this horse is full weight bearing on one foot for a long time. And, and they found her. And she shook her head but didn't really know what they were saying. And they didn't put anything on the unaffected limb at all. So another four hours after surgery home, the thing gets out of the trailer and it's lame on the quote-unquote good foot and uh, the the farrier wasn't sure what to do and by the by the time I got to it the hoof capsule was completely detached and so 
I, I, the vet that I work for, he's absolutely said euthanize this horse. I don't want any part of it. And so I talked him into going with me to the, to the barn. This barn was up in the middle of nowhere. And literally in the wintertime, it was four wheel drive and change to get to their house. But you go up there and this nasty old mare was standing there on one leg fighting off everybody in the barn to get food. She wouldn't lay down. She wouldn't quit. And so he said, well, if she bring her to town and keep her where we can take care of her, then we'll do it. So we brought her down to the clinic and he hands me a cast saw and he says, okay. And I said, well, this, this is surgery now, right? This is your job. And he goes, I'm going to drug the horse and give you a clean place to work and I'm going to watch. <laughs> so we didn't really know what we were doing, but we, we peeled off the hoof capsule and it was infected and it was nasty. And long story short, we managed to build up a foot with acrylic and we put aluminum plate on the bottom and uh, put a little plastic uh, piece of rubber in there for a uh, frog thing. And uh, little by little, she grew a foot and uh, she was 10 years old at the time. And I got a phone call after I'd been in California for a while from a farrier that I knew in Washington. He says, you remember that Maricuiton? I said, yeah. He said, I just trimmed her. I said, you've got to be kidding me. How old is she? She was 32 or 33 years old. So she lived with, with that messed up foot for 20 some odd years. But she was cranky, man. When I worked on her, she would stand on that foundered foot and let me put a heart bar on the other foot and just grimace. And as soon as she felt better, she would drag me all over the barnyard to, just to try and trim her. She was, she was funny, but she lived a long time. She did well. And they lived in a place where their mailbox was about a mile from their house. And so they could ride her down to the mailbox. She was pasture sound. She wasn't, they used her as a broodmare anyway, but yeah, that's, that was the article that uh, kind of got me started in California. Yeah. Yeah. The, one of the ways you, uh, let me rephrase that. The way you ended the article, with, you know, with some advice and one tip you had was don't buy into fads. Uh, how do you separate good principled farriery away from fads? That's an interesting question. When I first got out of shoeing school, somebody gave me a whole box full of journals and articles and anvil magazines and things. And if you go through enough years, you see things come on as being the, the best new idea. And then pretty soon they disappear and then they come back. And, and really the way I've always won, run my practice, I mean, I, I try and keep it fairly simple. And, and when I do lectures to pony clubs and backcountry horsemen and things, when we talk about laminitis, I always tell them there is, if somebody tells you this is what you have to do to fix this, keep looking because you can throw everything in the truck on that foot and not work. Or you could duct tape your billfold to the bottom of that foot and the horse will walk away. So it's not really a, a one size fits all sort of deal. You just have to think outside the box. And it wasn't until the last several years I started getting more interested in using, you know, glue ons and that kind of product. But even way back then, um, when, when I worked at the clinic, when we'd have major resections and things, we were, we were trying different ways to, to use adhesives. Back then we used boat putty and Bondo and anything else we could get. There were a few adhesives on the market, but they'd always tell you only guarantee it until the tail lights hit the driveway. So <laughs> we experimented with a little bit of that stuff back then. Yeah. But I think, you know, when I started, uh, I discovered Barb Marshall early on and he didn't live all that far from me. He was in Canada and I was in North central Washington and, and, uh, he, he changed my life and my career. And one thing he always, he always stressed was you, you get your support from your trim. It's all about the trim. I see a lot of these guys are make great shoes, but they don't put them on a great foot. I don't think it really balances out very well. When did you start picking up those lessons from Bob? First day I went and I can still hear his voice because I would go up and I'd work with him and he'd sneak up behind me and, and he'd say, that's not how I showed you to do that. And even now, all these years later, I'll be doing something and I'll think, if Bob was here, he'd tell me to tuck in my elbow or move my body some way. And I hadn't seen Bob in probably 15 years when I first moved here. I brought him down a couple of times, but I went to the Oregon Farriers Association uh, meeting last year and he was one of the clinicians. And he walks up and he says, well, you're still upright. You're still able to use all your body parts. So he says, I guess I did my job. <laughs> you know, again, about fads, I think it's, it, it's one thing when uh, – you know, you may see something on the supply shop shelf or uh, in an advertisement, but it's another now, especially with, with social media and, and Google, 
of horse owners learning more about new ideas and uh, uh, trying to influence you on it. How, how do you manage that situation? Oh, that's horrible. Uh, yeah, I think the internet has really uh, challenged us. <laughs> I mean, I, I literally weekly, probably daily, somebody will talk to me about something they saw that they want to try. And, you know, to a point, though, I had a woman want to try purple aluminum shoes one time. <laughs> and I said, well, they won't be purple very long, and why do you want aluminum? And, you know, I, I said, I tell you what, you buy them, I'll put them on. So she did, and it was two weeks into it, and they weren't aluminum. I mean, they weren't purple anymore. They'd already chewed through the toe. But, yeah, I mean, I think there's there's all kinds of different techniques and ideas on the Internet. And, and it's funny, horse owners and trainers sometimes talk to everybody but the farrier. I had a – had a trainer one time tell me that the horse hauler told him that you should never use a toe clip. The horse hauler told him that. <laughs> okay. So, but you, you deal with it. You just have to. Yeah. I'm not sure if, uh, you know, all, all the other facets of the horse industry get undercut by as many uh, lessons from Google as farriers do. I agree. I don't, I, I don't think so either. But I think, you know, farriers, farriers need to be on top of their game. I mean, as you know, there's no, no requirement. Anybody can buy a set of tools and go to work. So we're, we've kind of done it to our th ourselves, I think. I mean, people, obviously, they want the best for their horses. And it's a, I don't know what the last number was, but over a $212 billion industry in the United States. So it's a money game. You got to go where the money is. And so uh, everybody wants to win. And, and if uh, somebody sees – I used to do a lot of barrel horses, and if somebody won with a particular kind of shoe, everybody wanted it. So same thing with with the rest of the disciplines, I think. Yeah. So uh, the area you're in, Northern California, the, the appropriately named North Bay Farrier Service, mm -hmm. uh, what, what's what's your area like in terms of horses? You said you shoe a lot of show horses. Uh, what, what? It's, it's thick with horses. They I heard that between Sonoma County and Marin County, where I live, there's close to 70,000 horses. And the difference here between from, from where I came, there was one saddle club in town and everybody had a horse in their backyard. And literally here, you drive down the street, you look on both sides of the road and there's 30, 40, 50, 60 horses in the training facility everywhere you go. It, and it's crazy expensive. I don't know how they do it, but, but there's a lot of horses. I do probably the lion's share of my book is, is jumpers. I do a few hunters. Uh, do some dressage horses, still hang on to a couple barrel horses and a few backyard horses. But I really enjoy doing therapeutic work, which it's time consuming and doesn't really pay all that well because most of us don't charge what we really should because it takes so much extra time. But that's kind of where my passion is. So I, uh, I've tried to position myself to do as much of that as I can because that's rewarding. You know, you see one limp up to the slab and walk away with his tail over his back. That feels pretty good. Yeah, that, that was the question. You, I think you maybe have answered it, but uh, how to quantify how much to charge for a therapeutic job? I don't know that I'm very good at that. Uh, I, I, I go in with a fairly established idea of, of what I need to do for the amount of time it's going to take. But with these therapeutic cases, you always get the calls. You know, there's, they're not quite right. And, and I'm going to run out there. I mean, I'll run out there on a weekend. I don't normally work weekends, and I really don't like to work very late in the day. But I will if, if, there's, a, if there's an emergency with a horse. And, and it, it kind of depends on the client and the attitude and, and what, what I think I can get done with a horse. But I'm not going to charge them for every little thing I do, or they wouldn't afford, be able to afford me, most of them. And so – uh, to answer your question, I don't really have an answer. I don't know. I don't know how I how I quantify what I charge, but uh, I, I try and be as efficient as I can first time in, so I don't have to go back as many times. And sometimes I get lucky, and sometimes I don't. Yeah, I think too. You know, there's look. It's a living, but very few jobs out there have the satisfaction of of seeing a horse walk off sound, and uh, you know. It doesn't exactly. put food on the table necessarily, but it's it's enriching, so you don't get burned out, I think. Yeah, and, and I think you just struck on another point. It is a living, and and I've seen a lot of a lot of farriers that, that aren't 
horse people at all. That doesn't mean they're bad farriers because that's certainly not the case. But in some cases, that is the case. I think horsemanship is critical and not everybody has that. And you can't really teach that. It's just experience or instinct or I don't know what it is, but, but I think it's, it's, it's super important to have good horsemanship skills. And if you're a good horse person, then this job is just part of your lifestyle. It's sort of ingrained in you. And so you, you wake up in the morning and you're excited to go do it. I mean, everybody gets burned out. I certainly have. And then I go fishing or go play my drums. But um, I, I still, after all these years, still get super excited. Like now I have a, a young man working for me that's just on fire. And I get really stoked to go to the barn and work with him because he's he asks all the right questions. He works really hard. Uh, he's extremely talented. And it's fun. It's just fun for me. Yeah. Even yeah. though I hurt. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think that that's the other side of it of, you know, finding motivation from younger people. And if you see someone who's like that enthusiastic for the work, it's, it's going to fire you up. Oh, it sure does. Yeah. I, I think that's one of the keys too about therapeutic shoeing or shoeing in general is, is efficiency. You know, if we certainly can take as much time as necessary with a horse, but at some point you're eating away in time that cost your business profitability. Uh, what are some tips you have for efficiency, whether it's therapeutic shoeing or just your general practice? I, I tend to talk too much. <laughs> so, so I would say, I mean, I've had helpers, I'll, I'll lean on a horse and start telling a story <laughs> and they'll come up and they'll take the tools out of my hand and say, you finish the story, I'll finish the horse. So I, I, I think you're right. I mean, I, I think I think we can we can waste a lot of time just spinning our wheels. But um, I try any therapeutic case I work on. I, I love it when the veterinarian is there, but when they're not, I always have a conversation ahead of time. I always do. I always and and it's I try not to do the texting or the email. I try and talk to them. What are you seeing? What are you thinking? And I never. I mean, I learned this a long, long time ago when I was very, very young. You know, I, I worked for a veterinarian that kind of had one tool in his box. It was something he learned how to do in, in veterinary school. And so never in front of the client, but I'd say, what would you think if we tried this? Well, I don't know. Let's try it and see. And, and I, think, I think your approach is everything. And, and I think a sense of, I don't know if camaraderie is the right word, but you, you just, it, it takes a village and you have to work closely with the massage therapists and the body workers and the, the dentists and the veterinarians and whoever. But um, I think if I go in there with a plan and I've already discussed it with a vet, I follow my plan, I take notes, I take photos, I follow up with the vet, and then between the two of us, if something changes and we need to try something else, we communicate and we do it. So I think that has saved me a ton of time and a whole lot of frustration because I've never had a vet come out and say, well, what would you do that for? I wanted you to do this instead. It, it's always We always kind of know going in what we're going to do, and I think that helps. Yeah, it sounds like you have a good relationship with the vets because you're the one contacting them rather than playing that game of telephone through the client. Yeah, and, and I think, I mean, there's good and bad attitudes on both sides. And I think uh, when the Vet Farrier Short Course started, that was a, that was great. I mean, you're not going to get them all, but I've, I've taught that course off and on for, I don't know, maybe 14 years or so. And, uh, and, and I love it. I, I did Ohio state, I think was the last one I did last year, but, um, you'll get very few students, unfortunately, because I mean, they're big classes, but it's an elective and they get one day with an equine podiatrist and a journeyman farrier. And that's all the farrier most of them get in school. Uh, but if you get, if you get them to at least think about it and have an open mind, I always tell them in my lecture, find a farrier you can work with and open a line of communication and work together because it's going to say DVM behind your name pretty soon. And you're going to tell this person how to do their job. And I'm going to show you today that you don't know how to do their job. And it's just, I think, I don't know if Dr. O'Grady started that program, but he was the one that got me involved in it. And I think it was, I think it's great. I hope it continues. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think that it's an interesting program uh, overall. And I, I've seen it here at Madison what mechanisms or what lessons have you found successful in, in working with the vets to show them, you know, the, about what maybe is most important about the farrier's role and then their role in conjunction with the farrier? 
Well, the the AEP puts together a, a pretty good little uh, PowerPoint presentation, and then um, you know we I usually add a case study or two. But the biggest thing is we take them out to the barn after the lectures are over, and we give them a set of tools and a cadaver limb, and then the local farrier community comes and volunteers to help, and we let these students trim a cadaver limb, nail on a shoe, and then pull one off because really that's all they're going to be doing in the field is, is removing shoes for radiographs and things. But, you know, some of them, they can do it in 20 minutes. Some of them will take them all afternoon, but they get an appreciation for how difficult it really is. In the first place, they're, they're, they're game to do it. I mean, like I said, a lot of times they don't go. I had this young girl one time and she was, she wanted to shape shoe. Normally we'd shape it for them and let them let it off. When she gets done, she says, you know, when I go home for my break, I'm going to call my shoer, I'm going to bake him cookies, and I'm going to give him a hug. <laughs> Sometimes the challenge of therapeutic shoeing is not getting the progress you'd like to see with a horse. And that may require patience, but, you know, a danger that can come with it is, is you're not seeing the progress and that can affect burnout, you know, a subject we've talked about already. Um, oh, completely, yeah. How, how do you work? through that that process especially when you're maybe struggling finding that right solution for a horse you know I, I think a lot of that stems from from the horse itself uh that that kuitan that horse that wouldn't die from the article I had another one that very same year that was nowhere near as bad as that mare and the <laughs> the vet that i worked for called the owner and and the owner just wanted to put the horse down he says I'll give it to RT. He can fix it. So he gave me the horse, 16 year old Tennessee Walker, sweet as could be. I could get nowhere with that thing. He, uh, he just didn't have it in him. He just laid down, didn't want to get up and I didn't want to force him. So we, we ended up putting him down. But, um, I think that the, the horse and their will to live and aftercare so many times you, you get a, a client that's all gung ho to do the right thing. And then nobody touches that horse. till you or the vet comes back. And so you end up taking two steps forward and one step back and you don't really get where you need to go. And, and that's, that's frustrating. That's horribly frustrating because they don't, they don't do their part. And then if things go south, they want to look at you for answers. Yeah. Or, or the, you know, somebody to blame. What instructions do you leave for aftercare? It totally depends. And, and that's one thing that, that I, the veterinarians are critical They'll, they'll, they step up and they're normally when the veterinarians and myself will talk about what's needed together and, and, and hopefully, uh, most of the time the veterinarians give the instructions to the, to the client. I mean, I do as well if it's, you know, if it's just something real simple that we don't have a vet involved, but, uh, a lot of follow through, uh, you know, one simple little thing that we have down here that I never saw in Washington is, was a real deep thrush in the central sulcus. I see that all the time down here and there's a way to fix that. But they're not going to fix it if the only person that addresses it is me every five weeks. And I've had two cases where, where it got so bad that uh, it was misdiagnosed as navicular or something. And, and uh, the horses were about to be put down. And then you figure out it's just thrush that's tearing the foot in half. And you can fix that if you, if you follow through. And, and it, it's not that complicated. But people get busy and complacent and don't do it. Yeah. And that frustrates me because I'm there for the horse, not for the client. Right, right. What are, what are some of the other issues that are pretty prominent in your area? Well, one of the they get bathed way too much, and I don't think that's new here. But um, they get they get ridden, then they get washed, and we get a lot of rain in the winter. And everybody says, "How could you stand Seattle with all that rain?" It rained often when I was in Seattle, but down here sometimes it'll rain three or four inches in a weekend. And the hillsides fall off and the horses are standing in mud. And, and I'm, I'm sure that's nothing compared to what the, the folks in Florida have to deal with. But, but just there's a lot of water and uh, uh, you can't get them to stop. They're always washing the horses and the feet are always falling apart. But I don't, it's, it's honestly, it's, it's a, at least in my particular little niche, is a pretty darn good environment. Um, I very seldom have appointments where the people know I'm coming. I just run my book the way I run my book and they know I'm there when they get the bill. 
uh, have a good working relationship with the trainers and, and I try and follow up and I try and I don't really like horse shows all that much, but I like to go once in a while and just watch them work and watch them perform and talk to the riders about how they're feeling and what they're noticing. And that helps me understand the horse and what they need a little bit better. So, uh, how do, how do you plan your schedule? Uh, you know, it's with, uh, you know, your clients just know the, that you'll come and maybe it sounds like on a, obviously at a regular shoeing cycle, but uh, how, how do you manage that schedule? I, uh, well, if, if you know, the horses I do today, I'll, I'll schedule out for five weeks. Um, and I always keep it, keep track of what shows are coming and who's going. Most of my barns have a, have a board with, uh, with the horses that are going and where they're going. And, you know, sometimes I'll have to drop one back to four or move one to six just to fit them in the schedule. I really, I don't like to travel to the shows. And so I try and avoid that if I can, because I think that's a, a poor waste of time. We have thermal out here, which is a nine or 10 week show. And all the years I've been here working, I've never had to go. And I like that because it's a long ways away and it's hot. But uh, we, uh, Normally, my trainers will go for the first half, the middle, or the last half. I haven't had anybody stay for the whole thing. So I'll shoe them before they go, and then I'll shoe them when they get home. And sometimes they'll go back after they take a couple weeks off. But I just – and sometimes I get caught. Sometimes one will get added to the show uh, list that maybe was a late ad or I didn't see it. And uh, so I'll have to scramble to get them done. But I just, I just try and manage my book to where I have them booked out five weeks in advance or – whatever the schedule of the particular horse is on and I just go do them. And most of my, most of my stops are multiple horses uh, prior to the, the economic meltdown of what 2009 I'd make one stop a day and I'd work this one spot all day long. And then I had a, a barn that had 36 or 38 horses one day and I went the next day and they had three people just bailed. And so I started doing a few more backyard horses and a few more smaller stops and, and I, I kept them. How wide of an area do you cover now? I don't travel very far. I uh, Once in a while, I'll get a call and I'll get talked into driving for a ways to go do a therapeutic case. But I think my farthest, my farthest barn is probably an hour, maybe a little less for me. I mean, I can drive 10 minutes from my house and work for a week. <laughs> you mentioned the economic meltdown and, you know, we're, while we do this interview, we're still going through COVID-19 and pandemic. And oh boy. It, how has it affected your practice or at all? It, it seems a lot of show farriers are busy now because uh, people are spending more time with their horses. Exactly. That's me. I, I only know of one client that because of uh, being furloughed from work decided to sell the horse. But the rest of my clients, the lion's share of them, they're, they're spending a more time at the barn. Now, most of my barns were closed for uh, at least a month to where the only people that could get in were essential workers, the, the barn crew, the trainer, farriers, and vets, and the owners were not allowed on the property. And then little by little, they started reopening, but it, they're scheduling it rather than just, I'm going to go out and ride my horse today. You have to schedule a time. You're allowed a certain amount of time on the property, and then you go. Uh, the training still happened. Uh, the horses were all getting getting ridden every day, but the owners themselves were not allowed to come out and ride for a period of time for quite a few of my barns. But it's opened up a little bit now, even though we've had a, a huge uptick in, in uh, cases out here in, in uh, Marin County especially. Uh, people are, for the most part, being smart, being careful, trying to stay social distanced. And, I mean, to me, that's the best social distancing there is. I jump on my horse and get as far away from people as I can every chance I get. <laughs> yeah, in terms of the performance horses, are you seeing a change in them at all or any improvements or, or any change in their, their uh, I guess, their soundness at all? No, not really. I mean, it, my, my horses evolve. I mean, we, we stay on a pretty regular schedule, and, and I don't think there's been any difference in, in soundness issues now that this has gone on. But we, we certainly have been plenty busy. Yeah, I was talking to a farrier out east, and he was seeing an improvement because, uh, you know, without shows and without some horses being pushed so hard, they had some time to recover from, from those nagging injuries that, that added up. That makes sense. I, I, I'd, I'd go along with that. I mean, we get a lot of horses that come back from thermal that uh, not too long after they're back, they get real sore feet because the ground is not 
ideal, but um, yeah, it's been it's been pretty good. I mean, the horses have been well cared for, and but I can see that. Yeah, and um, revisiting the the topic of burnout, you uh, talked. You know, those cases you may go fishing, or or you may get behind the drum kit, and I, you know, I, I've never known you as as a farrier who plays drums or a drummer who shoes. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I've actually been playing music longer than I've been shoeing horses, but uh, I, you know, honestly, Jeremy, I still want to be a rock star when I grow up. I just haven't figured out how to do it. <laughs> when I was young, um, my, my children's mother, we're not my ex-wife, uh, my daughter was actually born on the road. We were on a tour and uh, my daughter came early. And so we took a little break and hired a nanny to get on the bus with us and went right back on the road. And then when my son, who's now, how old is my son? He's going to be 36. When he was just about to happen, we decided that we would retire. And retirement lasted probably two weeks. And then we started working with a local band and kept going. So uh, I didn't tour at all after my kids were, were born. And then uh, one of the most fun times I ever had playing music was about 18 or 19 years ago when my daughter and I played in a country band together up in Washington. And then she went off to uh, Italy to go to school. And I moved to California and my son moved with me. And when my daughter landed in Seattle, she called me. She said, you know, there's a whole lot of Californians have moved into Wenatchee, Washington. So I'm thinking there might be room for me in California. I said, there sure is. She's still here. <laughs> but my son put a band together last year where he, he normally is a drummer. He's an exceptional drummer, but he wanted to front this band. I didn't know he could sing, but he sure can. So he sang, I played drums and my daughter sang with him and they had a, threw a big birthday party for me. And uh, I got to be on stage with both of my kids and that was so much fun. Yeah, I bet. How, how do you manage uh, two passions that drive you as much as shoeing and music? You know, I think I'd go nuts if I didn't. I mean, I we when uh, my my band that I tour with, Junk Parlor, when we started that band, we were doing 120 to 150 shows a year. We would play anywhere that they would have us. Now, we've been at it for seven years now and four albums later, so we don't have to work quite that way. But it's just time management, and I have really good people to back me up when I leave. Our tours have never been lengthy. Uh, the longest I was gone was uh, I went to South by Southwest and did some showcases there in Austin. And I think we were probably gone 10 days maybe. But most of the time we'll leave, say, on a Wednesday. And I just manage my book around it. And then I have uh, whoever's working with me at the time handle lost shoes or, you know, stragglers that we don't get before I go. And then we usually play Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday somewhere. We'll go up to Oregon or we'll go up into Washington or we went to – New Mexico, but we flew there, so we, we were only gone four or five days for that one. But um, it, it's a juggling act, but to me, it's worth it. I, I just, I really enjoy it, and I need it. If I, if I just did one thing, I think I would burn out a whole lot more than I already do. How's your health? I'm good, except for my broken foot. I'm fine. I'm, I still have all my original body parts, which I'm pretty happy about. I had shoulder surgery a couple years ago, and that sort of slowed me down for a little bit, but I'm back at it yeah has the foot slowed down your shoeing at all oh yeah <laughs> i went in uh it was a week and a half ago i was supposed to get my cast taken off they cut the cast off and i told the guy i said i'm so excited i'm gonna go home i'm gonna take a shower i'm gonna scratch my foot but uh, they took an x-ray and said no you're not <laughs> the, the bones kind of moved instead of uh, going back together they came apart so they put me in a hard cast again for at least a month and then we'll revisit it. So it has really affected my drum playing and my shoeing because it's my, my right foot that I run my kick drum with. And I've don't tell my wife, but I've snuck under a couple and tacked a few shoes on. But for the most part, I just do the forging and fit the feet. And, and my buddy Mitchell, he, uh, he handles all the heavy lifting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sounds like too, you've, you've had it be, a, you know, a little prepared for, making adjustments, whether you're going out on the road and letting clients know or adapting to this. Yeah. And, and I'm in the truck. I mean, I, I haven't, I took a, the, when it first happened, I had to take a couple of days and keep my foot up in the air, but um, I, I couldn't sit still that long. So I, 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 even when I had my shoulder surgery, the doctor told me to take a year off. I said, well, how am I going to pay you? So I, I asked him, I said, can I, can I play my cajon, which is a box drum that you sit on? 
And I, I, he said, well, how does that work? So I showed him. And he said, well, if you get to pain level five, I want you to stop. And I said, come on, man, I shoot horses for a living. I live there. So he let me play my cajon. And then after another few weeks, I said, well, if I don't use my left arm very much, if I keep it in the sling and I just hit my snare drum, can I play my drums? And he says, you're going to be a problem for me, aren't you? And I said, yes. So he, he let me do that. And so I started, because I had to do something. I wasn't able to shoe horses at all. But uh, I started riding around in the truck just to talk to the owners. I didn't want them to feel like I was abandoning, abandoning them. And so I, I, I couldn't do any work at all when I had my shoulder sling on. But I'd, I'd go to work anyway and just hang out, yeah. keep an eye on my people. <laughs> well, at least with your foot, it doesn't affect your fishing. No, it does not. Actually, my grandson called me, and he wants to take me fishing this evening, so I'm all about that. <laughs> you want to get off here with me then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how many more years do you think you'll, you'll stay shoeing? Um, you know what? That was, that's a topic I was going to touch on. I'm glad you brought that up. If, if I could say anything to a young farrier, prepare yourself, and I didn't. I, I don't really own anything. I don't have any kind of retirement. So I'm going to be one of those guys that just keeps going until I can't. But I mean, I mean in a way that's okay, I guess. I, I want to stop when I want to, not because I have to for an injury or an illness or whatever. So last couple of years, I've tried to be a little bit smarter about, about that. But I didn't, you know, I, when I was young, I, I made money and I spent it. And I thought, well, one of these days I'll get a retirement account or an IRA or I'll invest in the stock market I just never did it and I, I, I regret that I think uh, I think uh, young farriers coming up should really focus because you never know I mean you could be full-time farrier one day and be done the next they told us in shoeing school you have a certain number of horses in you and you don't know when the last one's coming you know I think the the good side of that though is and we, we've seen maybe some farriers who have to continue shoeing horses for financial reasons, but hate the job. But the thing it still drives you. you know? Oh, I love it. Yeah. I don't ever want to stop. I mean, I suppose I'll have to someday and I don't mind slowing down, but uh, I, I just, I look forward to it. I get up in the morning. I'm excited to go find something to do. So as long as I keep doing that, I think I'm going to stay healthy and be able to, wrangle six grandchildren without too many aches and pains. <laughs> I like, you know, I like to leave these things on a really positive note like that. And, and uh, you know, for me, I think that's a good place for us to, to end the, the interview. Well, thank you. This was really fun. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate you taking the time and getting to hear a little bit more about your life. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I'd like to thank Robin for joining us. So we're planning out future episodes. We'd like to hear from you. Let us know who you'd like to see as a guest or other subjects you'd like us to cover in this podcast series, and we'll get to it. You can always contact us on email, jmcgovern at lessitermedia.com, or you can always write to us on Facebook and share your thoughts. You can put them in the comments below this episode, and we'll read them and uh, get to work on your ideas. So until then... Thanks for listening.